It's time, Fort Wayne. Your sports, your station. It's, it's the sports, sports Rush with Brett Rump. Covering all the topics that hit a nerve here in the Summit City. Only on 1380 The Fan and 100.9 FM. Now here's your host, Brett Rump. The greatest, most interesting, most important person of all time. You are Here we go, heading on home on a Thursday. It is the Sports Rush, your daily local sports fix, four to six, four down, one to go with this work week. And that means day four of our Shrine Circus tickets giveaway. Yeah, we've got a four-pack of tickets that you could win to the Shrine Circus, which is coming to the Coliseum January 26th through 28th. We've got that to give away here on the show. Also coming up on the show, Brian Newbert from blackandgold.com to talk some Purdue basketball. Also, we'll talk to James Boyd from The Athletic. And plenty of questions to ask, and we're not going to just focus on that fourth and one play. No, with James Boyd, I've got some other questions I want to talk to him about. First of all, in hindsight, looking back at this season, did the Colts have about the same record? Was it a better record, or was it a worse record? Because they didn't have the services of Anthony Richardson this year. You would assume losing your number one quarterback that that might cost you a game or two. And I'm just curious what James Boyd thinks. And it's a good day to ask the question because Anthony Richardson did speak to the media earlier today. And we'll we'll let you hear a little bit of what Anthony Richardson said coming up later in the show. Also, it is Thursday. That means PSM and Eric Dute Dukevich joining us to talk some high school basketball. Of course, tomorrow night, we've got the game of the year. In girls basketball in our area, as Snyder visits Homestead. Tip-off right after the sports rush at 6 o'clock. I'll be on the chopper once again, traveling to Pittsburgh. Boy, that was a quick trip yesterday. I got there, like, really fast out to Youngstown. Yeah, shout-out to the chopper pilot. (laughs) Getting you there on time. Yeah. Somebody, (laughs) do you know, somebody actually texted me today and said... Were you there? I didn't see you on the uh, the broadcast in the normal seat that you have when you're at Youngstown State. And I'm like, oh. They put you up in the uh, the rafters this time, I guess. Yeah, because I got there so late, <laughs> they had not reserved my seat at Press Row. So I actually sat up in the upper deck, general admission. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that game coming up, too. Mastodons last night. What a crazy one with Youngstown State. No kidding. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk uh, plenty about that. We've got coaches news. We've got uh, uh, the next Tiger Woods. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make a comparison. It's coming up. Nick Saban out in Alabama. And today we learned that Bill Belichick is also out in New England. A couple of friends that are going to start their life of yachting with Jimmy Johnson down in Florida. <laughs> um, you know, it's to me, I, I don't get all the hype. Okay, Bill Belichick has a great resume because he had the best quarterback that possibly ever played the game. 
Okay, it's tough for a Colts fan to say that, but the reality is the most decorated quarterback in the history of the NFL is the guy that played for New England for all those years. And as a result, Bill Belichick got a lot of credit as the head coach. Now, you know, the tough thing about being the coach, and it's kind of the same with being a a manager. For instance, if you're a sales manager and you've got some stud salespeople, you're always going to look like a good sales manager, even if you have no sales management skills. And if you're a sales manager that's got a really weak team, guess what? You're going to get exposed if you don't have extraordinary sales management skills. And to me, the story of Bill Belichick is kind of that. that. I mean, he rode the wave of Tom Brady, had a lot of success while Tom Brady was his quarterback. But before and after, Bill Belichick was a very average coach. He did kind of what you'd expect, prepare the team, try to find an opponent's weakness, try to exploit it. And yeah, you know, you can come up with all these great game plans, but you got to have the players to execute the game plans. And if they execute the game plans, all of a sudden it looks like you had a brilliant plan. But if you put together a brilliant plan and don't have the players to execute it, you don't look like such a smart coach. And there's plenty of coaches out there who have all the brain power and come up with all the complex schemes and strategies to try to take away an opponent's strength, but they just don't have the personnel to be able to execute it. Bill Belichick has been an average coach in the NFL for a very long time. He just happened to ride a wave of having a great quarterback, period. I'm not buying all this stuff about Bill Belichick, greatest coach ever. He's got, you know, he's got a great resume, but let, you know, you look at it. Six of his Super Bowl championships came with Tom Brady as his quarterback. Uh, Three-time AP NFL coach of the year, 2003, 2007, 2010. Oh, yeah, Tom Brady, Tom Brady, Tom Brady. (laughs) Maxwell Club NFL coach of the year, 2007. Uh, Yeah, Tom Brady. Uh, NFL 2000s all decade. NFL 2010s all decade. Uh Shall I say it again? Tom Brady, Tom Brady. Uh, you know, the, to, to me, I mean, we questioned who was really the one responsible. And it didn't even take a full season. And we realized in New England, the one who was responsible for the dynasty was not the head coach. Now, he didn't screw it up. And that's why I say he's a good average NFL coach. But Tom Brady... First of all, brought players there. He made things easy in putting together a roster because players would come and want to fit into the payroll structure. In other words, players took less money to go play with Tom Brady because they wanted to win rings. If Tom Brady wasn't there, a lot of the talent that came through New England would never have been in New England. And if you take away some of the talent that came because of Tom Brady... Bill Belichick would not look like anywhere near as good a coach as people are trying to make him out to be today. Yeah, I think it's big news because they've been partners for 24 years. And anytime you have a coach that's coached a team for 24 years, it is significant when that partnership eventually ends. But the time has come. It's been pretty clear over the last couple of years that New England doesn't have the talent Bill Belichick's not a good enough coach to overcome a a lack of talent. And it is time for New England to move forward, start a new era, and for Bill Belichick to step aside.
And I thought they handled it as well as you can possibly handle it because New England had every right to fire Bill Belichick. But instead, they mutually agreed that this is the time to part ways. Yep, they did it the most classy way possible, you know, doing the full press conference with Kraft and Belichick and saying no this is a mutual, mutual parting yeah, and no all that. No one wanted to be shamed. No. But, 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 but it's just, you know, you, you look at it and you're like, okay, he didn't do anything really extraordinary before Tom. He certainly hasn't done anything extraordinary. I mean... How many times, uh, you know, do you think that Bill Belichick single-handedly won a game in the NFL? I mean, maybe a handful of times. How many times do you think Tom Brady single-handedly won a game for the New England Patriots in his time in New England? More. Yeah, fourth quarter comebacks. Just go ahead and look <laughs> it up. So I, I'm not exactly buying into all this hype about Belichick and the great demand. If I'm an NFL team... He isn't on my list. This doesn't make a change in who I'm looking for for my next head coach. I mean, I don't want to use the word washed up, but I mean, it's a guy who's past his prime, whose prime was basically enhanced by having a great quarterback. And, you know, yeah, that that's that's part of being a coach. When you have great players, you look like a better coach. You know, I always say a play works better when the ball goes in the bucket. If you're, a, if you're a basketball coach and you draw up a play and that play results in two points or maybe three points, and you look like a brilliant play caller. <laughs> but what happens with Shane Steichen, who most of the year was called a pretty brilliant play caller for the Indianapolis Colts when his fourth down play didn't work? Everybody decided to dissect it, determine, was it the right personnel? Was it the right play call in that situation? You'd been running the ball for six yards a carry. Why would you choose to pass it on fourth and one? I mean, uh, you know, when the play doesn't work, it gets second guessed. Mm -hmm. For Bill Belichick, a lot of plays worked, probably because Tom Brady was the engineer that was mastering them. And so I I don't know. what. I mean, I, listeners, what do you think? Am I off base? Is Bill Belichick going to go down as one of the greatest of all time? He's got the numbers, yes. But to me, it's it's like, okay, he had the best player in the game. And in, in an era that the transition from running the football to passing the football, and maybe secondaries hadn't caught up yet, uh, Tom Brady was the difference for New England. It was not Bill Belichick. And so... I'm not giving him as much credit as so many people are right now in media. Uh, I mean, I, I respect that he had a lengthy career and that he rode that horse as far as he could get that horse to go. But un unfortunately, it was declining fast in New England. They were a bad football team this year. And uh, and it was time for a separation. I have to agree. 46862. Let us know your thoughts. 46862. Parkview Sports Medicine text line. All right. So last night. All right. I'm going to come. I'm going to come clean. Full disclosure. I was not at Youngstown State. What? I know. I know, Adam. You didn't know. I hid down the hole. Yep. We had <laughs> a COVID like remote broadcast last night. Unfortunately. Uh, too long a trip this week for me to be on the bus and in hotels all week. Well, I got work to do. And, uh, you know, somebody who pays me actually 
thinks that I should probably be here to do it, and I think that's probably a good idea. So I, I was not on the trip, um, and am not on the trip. The Dons are still on the road. They've got Robert Morris coming up tomorrow night. But what a crazy game at the Beagley Center in Youngstown, Ohio last night. Mastodons, of course, coming off that wild loss to Wright State where they were down by 23 points and drew within seven in the last minute of the contest. Well, you know what the Mastodon said last night was basically, hold my beer. (laughs) Because here they came last night from 27 down with uh, 13 minutes and 28 seconds left. Now, just if a team averages about 80 points per game, okay, 27 points would be what you'd expect them to score in 13 minutes and 28 seconds. They're down by 27. And so I don't know what ESPN's numbers would have shown as far as their percentage or odds of winning at that moment. But let's say it's probably safe to say it was well below 1%. And uh, and they ended up, yes, losing the game 93-85. to 85. But only nine and a half minutes after falling behind by 27, the Mastodons were within one possession. 81-78, the Dons had gone... On a uh, 44 to 20 run in about nine and a half minutes. How crazy is that? 44 points in nine and a half minutes. They were on pace to put up 200 points in a 40 minute basketball game. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. And, uh, and, and that's what this team's capable of. Now, the question's going to be, Hey, that's great. You made this wonderful comeback and run on the road against a really good opponent. But how the heck did you get down by 27 points? And that's a good question. Uh, Because uh, the Mastodons have been struggling. They're scoring just 36 points a game in the first half in the Horizon League. And they're scoring 51 plus in the second half. They've got to get the first half figured out. Got to be more aggressive. Attack the basket. Finish at the rim. They miss some layups. And and the worst part is they're not finding their three-point shot in the first half. I don't know why. Uh, you know, and I, 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 as a radio guy, don't get paid to try to analyze <laughs> how you can turn around a first-half shooting woes. But the Mastodons, uh, for instance, last night, uh, in the first half, the Dons were 3 for 11, 27% from 3. And Max Nelson, who's almost a 50% three-point shooter, and if he had shot enough shots, he'd be among the nation's leaders in three-point percentage shooting. Last night, Max Nelson was 0 for 6 in the first half from beyond the arc. 0 for 6. And the Dons were setting up wide-open shots, and he wasn't hitting them. And, you know, sometimes that happens. Numbers have a way of evening themselves out. But 0 for 6, I mean, to get those looks and to have those misses, and they're shots he has to take because he's a good three-point shooter on the year, and he had nobody within 10 feet of him. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of the the problems the Mastodons have had. Create great shots for good shooters, and in the first half, they are just not falling. Three for 11 in the first half, but then they hit five of eight for 62.5% in the second half. 
But in the second half, they also attacked the basket and finished because in the first half, they only shot 33%, and they shot 56.25% in the second half. Mm. And uh, a lot of that was Rashid Bello, who ended up attacking the basket often and successfully in that second half, finished with 25 points, went to the free throw line 14 times, made 11 of them, and uh, he finished with 25. And Quentin Morton Robertson ended up with 21. The big question is going to be his physical condition because he got plowed can you believe i don't know if you saw the play last night adam quentin morton robertson they threw a cross-court pass mm-hmm. morton robertson went up to catch it and the youngstown state guy got a late break on the ball and tried to cut in and, and intercept it he ran right through quentin morton robertson i know qmr is only five eight maybe you missed him but <laughs> i don't know how he got completely run over it looked like something out of uh out of the the coyote, what uh, Roadrunner? Roadrunner, yeah, Roadrunner, Coyote. It, it, it looked like something that you'd see on that cartoon, where you know something goes by, uh, you know, the Acme truck or whatever, and it, it wipes out. That's what they did last night to Quentin Morton Robertson. They didn't even call a foul. They went to the monitor, I guess, to look and see if there was something flagrant, but they didn't even call a foul when he got absolutely run over. And ended up having to uh, be looked at by the trainers for a considerable time as he laid on the court over near the sideline. And uh, and so, you know, I asked uh, Coach Kaufman if there was any update on QMR after the game. And I was, uh, I, I then enjoyed like six <laughs> seconds of <laughs> silence. I got nothing. Yeah. Not, a, not an answer at all. I don't know. Maybe the phone failed. We we maybe think not. it might have been a phone issue, but uh, unconfirmed. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, well, I've gotten the same response when I've sat right next to him and asked a question <laughs> about an injured player. And I and I told him I set the question up and I said, you know, I know how you feel about answering these questions, but I do have to ask because it's going to be a question on Mastodon's fans' minds. Uh, we saw it on the the uh, TV, heard it on the radio. Quentin Morton Robertson, run over, dealt with with the trainers, never returned to the game for the last couple of minutes. Uh, Is there any update? And, of course, there was not a comment made. I had to then go go on to my next question without a word being spoken. Not not an update, to put it at the least. By Uh, the way, (laughs) I checked the win percentages of the game during those two points. It was um, 99.8 win percentage um, when they were at their biggest lead. So that would be... 0.02 for the Mastodons. And then when they cut it to three, it was still a 68.9% win percentage for YSU. Yeah, but I mean, but... But they cut it to three. Yeah, cut it to three with over two minutes left. That's huge. Now, the only problem, here's how basketball is a crazy game of inches. Uh, Jalen Jackson drives, comes down the lane, and he, he floats up kind of a teardrop from the middle of the paint. The ball hits the front rim, kind of hangs on the front rim, and then falls off. If that ball would have gone in, the Mastodons would have been within a point, and they still would be, you know, putting the pressure on Youngstown State. The ball fell off the iron. Youngstown State, the rebound with a quick outlet to midcourt, and it got him ahead of the defense, so it was a one-on-one opportunity. Youngstown State took it to the basket. And not only scored the layup, but then got a foul and an and one. And the game, instead of being a one-point game, if that goes in, is now a six-point lead for Youngstown State with two minutes left. And that completely changed the rest of the game. Yeah, Don's never made another threat after that. 
and they end up falling by eight. 93 to 85 was the final. Mastodons, in their last three games, get this, they have scored 57, 58, and 55 second half points. Huh. Just need to do it in both halves now. <laughs> There's teams that don't score 55 points in a contest. Very true. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they've really, I mean, they only had 30 at halftime. They were down 45-30 at the half. And that game was close until, like, the last six, seven minutes of the first half. And Youngstown State then went on a little run, hit some three-pointers. I thought the Dons got crossed up. Uh, we were going to talk about why they got down 27. They got crossed up, I think, on some uh ball screen type situations because there were some pick and pop plays. They they ran their short lineup. We never saw the seven three guy on the floor at all for Youngstown State last night. They went with their six seven, six 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 guys that could drop it in from beyond the arc. They stayed with their short lineup. They didn't feel like they needed the seven three guy. They wanted to match up with the six 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 seven guy. Uh six six and six seven guy. They have two of them. <laughs> and uh, all night long, they brought them out to set high screens for the point guard. The point guard would drift over, and as he came off the screen, uh, our four-man or five-man, whoever it might be, they seemed to hedge far too far with that guard, and they would get 10 to 15 feet off their man. Their man then, after setting the screen, would have a pick-and-pop where he would drift a little bit away from the point guard as he would dribble right. The pick man would kind of... Uh, flare to the left, and they ended up with like 10, 15 feet of space to drop in three balls. And, man, they uh, they hit their threes. Eight of 19 last night for three-pointers, 42% for Youngstown State. And uh, um, I'm sorry, that was uh, it was 11 of 28. They hit 11 threes. And if you look, DJ Burns, one of the bigs, he was three for five. And Ziggy Reed who is another one of the bigs that was taking advantage of the pick and pop, was three for four. And so uh, the Dons not staying with the big who was setting the screen cost them, uh, what, three? Cost them six three-pointers. That's 18 points, and you end up losing the game by eight. 46862 Parkview Sports Medicine text line. We got to get to today's top headlines. Find out what's happening in the world of sports. Uh, we check in with Adam Lundy. All right, thanks, Brett. Oregon coach Dan Lanning, who had been mentioned as a potential target for Alabama's coaching vacancy after Nick Saban's retirement, says he will remain with the Ducks. A video posted to Lanning's social media today contained the caption, quote, If you're scared your coach is leaving, then come play for us. The Ducks aren't going anywhere, and I'm not leaving. And uh, yeah, if you're scared to follow Nick Saban in Alabama, stay where you're at. <laughs> yeah. Two of the Eagles' star players, quarterback Jalen Hurts and receiver A.J. Brown, have injuries to monitor ahead of Monday's wildcard playoff game at the Buccaneers. Hurts dislocated the middle finger on his throwing hand in the regular season finale against the Giants. Brown, meanwhile, exited late in the first quarter with a right knee injury and did not return. He was not present at the beginning of today's practice. Hurts was, but he wore a glove on that throwing hand during the portion of practice open to the media. 
Cleveland Browns Pro Bowl cornerback Denzel Ward suffered a knee injury in today's practice, putting his status in question for Saturday's playoff game against the Houston Texans. Browns coach Kevin Stefanski said that Ward was limited in the practice but offered no other details. He's officially listed as questionable for the game. And the Chicago White Sox avoided arbitration with right-handed pitcher Dylan Cease and first baseman Andrew Vaughn for $8 million and $3.2 million, respectively. Dylan Cease, the Sox 2023 opening day starter, is on the trade block and may not open the season with the White Sox. Uh, I will tell you that there's only two names that I think should be on the top of the list for Alabama. And uh, Lanning was not one of them. So I, uh, but I understand, you know, a couple of people that they've already contacted have said thanks, but no thanks. But I, I mean, I really think it comes down to Sarkeesian and DeVore. And one of them I don't think leaves their situation. The other one I think would be on the next plane out of town. So I, I would not be surprised within the next 24 hours, we start to hear rumblings that Halen DeVore is the man in Alabama. I mean, All the right. premier football conference, yes, the Big Ten is adding teams, but that's only going to make it more difficult for a team like Washington, who has to travel halfway across the country to go play games. Uh, I Just my thought that Halen DeBoer, who has won everywhere, including his time as an offensive coordinator for Indiana, uh, I, I think... Uh, I think he might end up being the guy. Sarkeesian, I just don't know if it's worth the risk of leaving what he's building in in Texas, in Austin. And we certainly throw that out to the text line, 246862. Who do you see taking over the Crimson Tide? All right, we'll come back. Mike Woodson, he's not going anywhere. You don't have to have the fire Mike Woodson uh, hashtags because, quite honestly, he's got at least another year. I'll tell you why. Also, there's a new Tiger Woods in another sport, and I'll tell you who it is when we come back. It's a sports rush on 1380 The Fan and 100.9 FM. You're listening to The Sports Rush with Brett Rump on 1380 The Fan and 100.9 FM. Listen live at 1380thefan.com. Brian Newbert of goldandblack.com, part of the On3 Network, is going to be joining us coming up in about uh, 10 minutes from now. All of you Indiana fans that have uh, gotten fed up with Mike Woodson and the inconsistencies in the Indiana basketball program, just sit tight. you got to get through this year, and you're probably going to have to get through next year. I don't think Mike Woodson's going anywhere. Scott Dolson is not going to choose him to take over the program and get so much so- support from uh, influential past players that have been in the program that Woodson is going to be there for at least another year. And... You know, here's the challenge, though, because a major part of coaching college basketball now is not just the X's and O's, but it's a very complex game. First of all, you've got to balance things with parents and players because, you know, parents, especially a very high profile five star guys, they want to know that you're working with their kid because he's the one that's going to cash in the big, uh, you know, big bankroll. He's going to be the next NBA player. And so you've got a fine line to walk dealing with parents and players to develop the individual talent. You also have to deal with NIL, and it's something that some coaches that have been in the game for a while maybe haven't adapted to as well or have just walked away from. Jay Wright, an example. Um, but 
when you are recruiting and putting together your roster, you also have to be a really good identifier of talent, not just how good is a player, but how his skill set fits with exactly what will complement the current guys on your roster. I think Indiana got trapped into going after guys that were listed on ranking sites as being the best available. They, you know, five stars, but they weren't looking at the right mix of talent. And that's where I think you use Purdue as an example. Uh, Purdue, they knew exactly what they needed after seeing the team last year. They knew that they needed a uh, a guard that could score, but was more uh, a defender, somebody that could could match up against another team's penetrating, quick scoring type of guard, and be a defensive stopper, be an athlete to bring them more athleticism, more quickness, and somebody that could be explosive, where they put pressure on the defense as far as the potential drive to the basket or transition game. Uh, you know, there's there's certain things that are weapons that you might overlook. I mean, just a guy that's got explosiveness forces defense to back off and get back in transition. It might take a, a player off the offensive glass that normally would try to go for a rebound. Uh, and Purdue realized that is the profile of the player they needed to add to this year's roster. And they didn't go get the best guy in the transfer portal. They got the guy that fit that specific skill set the best. And they ended up with Lance Jones. And he's been a perfect fit for the Boilermakers. And that's what, you know, I think IU might have failed in bringing, I mean, you get Khalil Ware, that's great. Got a seven-footer. But then you go get Peyton Sparks. Oh, that's great. You got another post player. Uh, So, But now you got to figure out how to use these two big guys. And then you get Mackenzie Mbako. And it's like, okay, what role does he play and where does he fit? Uh, and then because you've got Galloway and Xavier Johnson, you don't get the guards that want to come into Indiana because they're concerned they're not going to be able to step into a starting spot that's been vacated. Uh, it's just poor roster assembly. Because I was talking to somebody earlier today, and, and one of the thoughts we had was, all right, what is the combination that you think would be the best five to go with right now? And nobody can answer it because... Well, you got to have a point guard. Ah, oh, you know, maybe this would be sacrificing too much shooting. Uh, it's just really difficult to put five guys together because you can't really identify the guy who's the best shooting guard, the guy who's the best point guard, because you got a lot of players that just don't seem to fit. Uh, you know, like Gunn and uh, Walker. I mean, you've got uh, guys that that sit on the bench that it's like, okay, maybe they deserve some extra minutes, but who do you put down? You can't take Malik Renew out of the lineup. Khalil Ware's been pretty good as a defensive player, but, you know, and you almost owe him the minutes because he transferred in. Uh, Mackenzie Mbako is a top prospect, and you're trying to develop him. The only way he develops is if he gets playing time. So it's really a tough roster to deal with. And uh, and so I think Indiana is going to have to really take a, a long look in the mirror at the roster assembly they have, who they want back, who they can upgrade, what positions they want to upgrade, what style they want to play, and what are the players that fit that style, and not just get all the guys that win the press conference and get the most retweets on Twitter. 46862 Parkview Sports Medicine text line. By the way, there is a new Tiger Woods in women's basketball. Her name is Caitlin Clark. 
Watching last night with Purdue and Iowa, I started to realize we were seeing what we saw about 25, 26 years ago with a young Tiger Woods breaking through on the PGA Tour. Now, Adam, you may not remember those days because you were in diapers. Yeah. But when Tiger Woods first broke in, it was must-watch television. If you knew that Tiger Woods was going to be playing in a golf tournament, you set aside time that weekend because this was a phenom. This was a generational player. You had to see him perform against some of golf's greats. And right now, that's what we're seeing with Caitlin Clark. She's selling tickets like crazy away from Iowa. Last night, sold out Mackey Arena for a women's basketball game at Purdue. Purdue's won national championships, and they didn't sell out the arena. I mean, Caitlin Clark is is now the rock star of the sports world. Um, I mean, she moves the needle on television. There's more women's basketball on TV right now because Caitlin Clark is playing. Because if you look, a lot of the games that are being added to the schedule are Caitlin Clark games. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, merchandising, marketing. So right now, I would say that we are witnessing kind of the same phenomenon we had when Tiger Woods broke into the PGA Tour with Caitlin Clark and the impact she is having on women's basketball. Last night, she was terrific. Had a triple-double. Iowa crushed Purdue 96-71. Clark had 26 10 rebounds, 10 assists, and her best bucket didn't even count. I don't know if you saw it last night on SportsCenter. Nope. She was standing, holding the ball almost in front of the Purdue bench. Holding the ball 35 feet from the basket, kind of holding it bent over at the hips and, and the ball down low. And as soon as Purdue's defender came up on her and started to reach, she stepped in, clipped the arm of the Purdue defender, and then went up and launched a 35-foot three-pointer. Not only did she make the basket, but she was convinced she was fouled. Now, she did get the call. They called a foul, but they didn't give her credit for the basket. thought she got ripped. But that might have been the best basket she made all night, and it didn't even count. But, uh, man, she is uh, really, really setting uh, the world on fire in college basketball, women's basketball right now. And it's kind of cool that eventually she should become an Indiana fever. All right, we got to take a break. Brian Newbert, goldenblack.com, is going to join us on the other side of the break. You're listening to the Sports Rush on 1380 The Fan and 100.9 FM. Estadon's women got a nice victory last night at home against Oakland. That sweeps the season series against Golden Grizzlies. 79-59 was the final from the Gates Center. And now the Mastodons go on the road to take on one of the powers of the Horizon League, Cleveland State. This weekend. All right, so Purdue loses again as number one ranked team in the country. Another Big Ten opponent does them in on the road as Purdue falls to Nebraska, 88-72. And uh, got to talk about it. And we found uh, Brian Newbert from goldenblack.com, who's part of the On3 Network, does a great job covering the Boilermakers. And he's joining us right now on our guest line. Good afternoon, Brian. Good afternoon. How are you? Uh, I'm doing very well, and uh, let's let's talk some Purdue basketball. Of course, you know uh, against Nebraska, they go on the road, they get beat. I I think in some ways, and I don't know if this applies to Purdue, but in some ways, college basketball's power programs 
uh, are not doing enough to challenge themselves in that first month or two of the season with facing some hostile environments. And I think you're seeing some of these upsets and some of these surprises and what we call parity in the conferences because it is darn tough to play in those environments if you haven't had that experience. And Purdue's faced it a couple of times, both at Northwestern and now at Nebraska, and they've fallen short. Yeah, well, Purdue played, you know, its greatest non-conference season it's ever scheduled. It won the greatest postseason tournament field ever assembled with Marquette, Tennessee, Kansas, and, and Gonzaga out in Maui. It signed up voluntarily to play a road game at Arkansas for charity. Uh, Purdue really couldn't have done a whole lot more to prepare itself for Big Ten road games, and it did. It's really hard to get road games uh, or to get home and homes with people. Uh, everybody wants to do neutral. That used to take care of itself mm-hmm. with the Big Ten ACC Challenge and the Gavit games. Those two things are obviously going by the wayside with the Big Ten's new media rights deal, so it, it's hard to get true road games. Um, I don't know if Purdue tried to get one other than the Arkansas thing, but, uh, you know, Purdue just has, just has to be better on the road. They've turned the ball over in these two games too much, and that was the root of their issue at times last year, and that's the root of their issue this year. And, uh, you know, sometimes in the Big Ten, somebody shoots 60% from, uh, from three-point range against you, and what happened on Tuesday night happens to you. Well, and, and that's one of the questions. When you break this game down, was that something where Nebraska made some really tough contested shots or did Purdue break down defensively to allow Nebraska to shoot 61% from three? Yeah, um, if you watch the game, you saw Kisei Tomonaga do what he did last season a bunch of times. He just makes impossible threes. Not a, a single one of them would be would be considered open by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, there were some open threes Nebraska got uh, on guys pretty strategically, you know, sort of played off of. Uh, there were some threes from some very low-percentage shooters. It was kind of one of those nights, but Tominaga was 5 of 9 from 3, just, you know, had guys in his face, had guys in his shirt. Lance Jones, who was his primary defender, said after the game that if he was any closer to him on any of his the threes he gave up, he would have fouled him. And uh, that's kind of what Tominaga does. I think he's one of the Big Ten's foremost game wreckers because he can do this. He did it multiple times last year. He just goes off and makes a bunch of impossible shots on their home floor. And uh, It was just kind of one of those buzzsaw nights for Nebraska, one of those buzzsaw nights for Purdue. And, uh, you know, Nebraska's always been pretty good on their home floor. They're not the most formidable program in the Big Ten, but that is a really good environment at Pendleton at Pinnacle Bank Arena, and they've always been very tough to beat there, and uh, they had one of those shooting nights. I, I, I think Purdue probably could have been better defensively. I think that starts with not turning the ball over uh, the way they do. Uh, Nebraska got 18 points off turnovers. Uh, that's the root of Purdue's problems when they get beaten in games like this typically. But um, I think Nebraska did a pretty good job exploiting some of Purdue's vulnerabilities defensively, but I think you have to give Nebraska way more credit offensively than you than you give Purdue blame defensively. Purdue's got to ride their national player of the year, Zach Eady. And uh, if you match up the two center positions, Mast actually had better numbers, 18 points to 15 points. Uh, rebounds, Eady had seven. Mast had four. 
uh, but assists, three assists for Mast, and uh, Edie just won. Uh, Edie turned it over three times. Is that, is that, I don't want to make it, the, you know, oversimplify things, but is that one of the keys to the game that, that Edie has to win at least his one-on-one matchup? Well, uh, he never has a one-on-one matchup. Uh, I think you're reading the box score. And, uh, you know, you know, Zach Eady has three guys guarding with the rim, and Mass is catching the ball 20 feet out. That's kind of the difference between the two there. Mass was driving from the high post. He was shooting threes. Um, and he had a little bit of a quickness advantage on Eady. So that's what, what I meant before when I said that Purdue – was exploited a little bit on some mm-hmm. of their vulnerabilities from a defensive perspective. I think that was uh, that got Nebraska off to a really good start. Uh, other than that, Edie, you know, when they're putting three guys on you, you got to make a bunch of threes, and pretty shot pretty well. It just is a matter of them making thirteen threes is nothing compared to Nebraska making the same amount on much lower volume. But then Purdue turning the ball over uh, to and leading to those. To those transition points and things like that is uh, really the difference in the game. I, I don't think Purdue could have done much more um, to get Zach Eady the ball than it did. I mean, they run a lot of different actions to get him the ball. It's just Nebraska dedicates so much attention to him as everybody does. Uh, but you know, typically the productivity kind of finds Eady, and you know he was he does end up with 15 points on very very minimal touches. And things like that. He just wasn't the normal um, kind of dominant figure he normally is. But I think that's simply because he's got three guys guarding him, and it's just really hard to get the ball. What about Trey Kaufman? Wren had that breakout game against Illinois and scored twenty three points, was eight for twelve from the field, and then comes out and ends up with a goose egg uh, against Nebraska. Um, is that just Purdue being Purdue where they find the hot hand and they, they work the ball to that particular player or off night, inconsistent? What what did you see from TKR? I don't think he took a shot. Um, he got the ball in, in a mismatch at the rim once uh, on Tominaga. That's a bucket normally. Um, but, but Nebraska did a really good job with the help defender coming in and kind of crashing into him as he went up, and it ended up a turnover. Uh, I think there was a missed one-and-one in there somewhere, but he he just they just weren't able to get him the ball. I think the Zach Eady, uh, Trey Kaufman, Ren pairing, um, you know, sometimes really pays dividends. Uh, Sometimes it's a situation where it doesn't quite click. I think there were opportunities around the basket where Trey Kaufman, Ren was open, I guess you'd say, uh, as his man left to go be one of the three guys guarding Edie, just kind of a hard pass to make when you got your back turned to the guy. Uh, just didn't really work in a clogged lane against Nebraska. Uh, it does work against other people. Uh, I, th- I think Coffin Wren's numbers against Illinois also uh, are largely a function of the fact that Zach Edie only played half the game because of foul trouble. Um, but I think this was just a game where things didn't go Kaufman Wren's way. What's the uh, role? Because we paid close attention to the Fort Wayne guys, both Fletcher Lawyer and uh, Caleb First. And I guess we're seeing Caleb First kind of on the court less and less. Is he kind of an odd man out with the development of Heidi and then uh, Trey Kaufman Wren having a breakout game? I mean, what's 
What's Caleb first got to do to get more court time? Well, uh, not being behind Zach Eady would be a good start. Um, <laughs> he's produced he's produced number two center right now. He plays forward two at times. They did bring him in relatively proactively to try to guard Mast because because he's quicker and a better perimeter defender than Eady. Uh, that didn't really work either because uh, he he was able to get downhill a little bit off the dribble and and get to the basket. Made a really really uh, low percentage running hook shot over Caleb first. Um, but first is just kind of playing a role for Purdue right now. He's he's giving them front court minutes at a couple of different positions. He plays really hard. He rebounds. Um, he's not shot the three as well as he did earlier in his career. He's not finished around the basket as well as you know, perhaps Purdue would like. But he, he's also not in a role where you know he's getting a lot of offensive run for him. He's not getting a lot of touches. He's just kind of one of those guys who plays hard, kind of makes things happen. Is a bit of an of an energy spark, uh, a better perimeter defender than Purdue probably has among anyone else in their backcourt. He's just in kind of a logjam here with Zach Eady at center and then Trey Kaufman and Mason Gillis both playing the four. Both of those guys are obviously very good players as well. Uh, so he's uh, um, kind of just in a in a bit of a logjam, but. Uh, his energy is a very, very valuable commodity for Purdue. All right, let's talk about Purdue moving forward because uh, we all know the pressures of playing on the road in the Big Ten, especially as a number one ranked team in the country, and you get the big target on your back. But everybody talks about this Purdue team isn't really going to be uh, evaluated and scored until we see what happens in March. So between now and then, what does Purdue have to improve or what do they have to perfect to be the best possible version of themselves? Well, they're pretty good right now. I mean, I, I think that they're shooting the ball really well. I think that was the biggest question coming in. Zach Eady's still a great player. Braden Smith's had a great year. Their role players are doing great jobs. Uh, Camden Heidi, you mentioned before, is playing really, really well off the bench. Mason Gillis is playing really, really well, although I wouldn't want to minimize him to you know the sort of backhanded compliment sometimes people take the term role player to be. Uh, Fletcher Lawyer's been good when he's been used, when he's had opportunities. Um, I think the thing for Purdue is they're, they're, I think they're good defensively. I don't think they're great defensively. I think that, you know, there are certain metrics out there, Ken Palm and whatnot, that have them looking much better defensively than they actually are. I think there are some real vulnerabilities there still, as I think there are always going to be because of the nature of their personnel. But I think Purdue can keep getting better and better there. And then the thing that just hangs over their head is these spells of turnovers that um, have cost them dearly in these two road games. Again, this wasn't a new issue this year. This was something that, that haunted them a little bit last year when their guards were young. Their guards aren't young anymore, and uh, it, it they're not the sole reason for the problem sometimes, but they just have to take care of the basketball and not help the opponent get points that the opponent hasn't earned. That cost them at Northwestern. That cost them at Nebraska. Uh, but I'm not sure anything was beating Nebraska that night because of the way they were shooting the basketball. But that's from here on out for Purdue's season the rest of the way to go the way Purdue wants its season to go. It's those turnovers that more than anything have to be have to be curbed, and the impact of those turnovers as well. It's not just the number, but it's how they impact the game. Um, so keeping that to an absolute bare minimum, I think, has got to be priority number one. Yeah, I think uh, when you look at turnovers, it's a lot of that rides on Braden Smith because uh, 
you know, he's kind of, to me, the vulnerable one in that particular category. That If he's not turning the ball over, I think Purdue is a very special elite team that's probably the best team in the country. Uh, I'm not going to make it a definitive, but I will say I, th- I think Purdue is the best team in the country if if Braden Smith's not turning it over. But when he does turn it over, I think it creates some opportunity vulnerabilities with Purdue, especially when they're in an environment where an opponent's playing like they are uh, at Nebraska. All right, so it's Penn State at home, and then it's the trip to Indiana. Certainly don't want to have a letdown if you're Purdue uh, and and look ahead because, uh, you know, Penn State isn't a great basketball team, but you never want to look past anybody when you're in the Big Ten. Correct. Um yeah, I, I think that I think Penn State will try to apply some pressure on Purdue's backcourt, uh, try to create those very turnovers we just got done talking about. Uh, Purdue's not really been phased by that all year long. Um, you know, there have been some situations playing with big leads where Purdue's gotten a little turnover prone. I don't know if that's really been any sort of direct result of people pressing them or trapping them or whatever it may be. Uh, or it's just been Purdue just getting sloppy, uh, which you know, tends to happen sometimes. Um, but Penn State, just I, I just don't think they have the horses to win a MAC hearing. Um, yeah. Obviously, you don't want to take it for granted. Purdue won't take it for granted. Purdue has no business taking it for granted. But uh, it is kind of one of those games where a team, you know, could be, if it were less mature, if it were maybe a little distractible or whatever, could phone that one in and, um, I, I haven't seen a lot of signs from Purdue that they're vulnerable to that sort of thing. You know, when they lost at Northwestern, that was a double overtime game. They started great. They were up double digits uh, halfway through the first half, so I don't think that was a phone-in issue. Uh, all of their bye games in Mackey Arena, there was really no you know, lag, so to speak, coming out of the gate. Uh, the Nebraska game was uh, probably... Not the ideal start, but I think that had more to do with Nebraska than it did Purdue. The game at Maryland, Purdue started fine. Uh, I, I don't really think that you know Purdue is uh, really vulnerable to just not showing up. Um, I could be wrong, but I haven't seen a whole lot of reason to believe that's the case. And then certainly the Indiana game, Purdue ought to be taking that one very seriously, especially after the way it went last year. Yep, absolutely. And, of course, uh, the uh, TV gods... Uh, so uh, so wonderfully put this game on Peacock again. So, uh, hey, Brian, appreciate you, man. It was great stuff. And uh, look yeah. forward to, to your uh, your penmanship on goldenblack.com, part of the On3 Network. Appreciate <laughs> it, man. No problem, Brett. Thanks for having me. Yep, that's Brian Newbert, who joins us here on the Sports Rush. Big hour coming up. Nick Saban out at Alabama who are some of the favorites to replace him, and who do you have to replace Nick Saban in Alabama? Uh, also, we'll make our NFL picks for this wild card, the wild, wild card weekend, or whatever they call it. Uh, by the way, Adam, we have got a four-pack of tickets that we want to give away to the circus, and so right now we're going to get that fun started. We've got uh, four tickets for the Shrine Circus. They're vouchers so you can redeem them for whatever show is most convenient, whether it's January 26th, 27th, 28th, whatever showtime you want to attend. We'll give you a four-pack of Shrine Circus vouchers, and all you have to do is text us three rings of fun. Yeah, I mean, we probably know the jingle by heart now. We've heard it for so many years. 
It's three rings of fun. You text that phrase to us. That is today's phrase that pays because uh, somebody that texts three rings of or yeah, three rings of fun to four six eight six two is going to win our four pack of tickets today. Three rings of fun to four six eight six two. The Parkview Sports Medicine text line. We'll take a timeout. James Boyd on uh, deck at about five twenty this afternoon. It's a sports rush. A thirteen eighty the fan and one hundred point nine FM. 